Trade Bites, the podcast about trade policy. Hello and welcome to Trade Bites, the new podcast series by the UK Trade Policy Observatory at the University of Sussex and hosted by me, Chris Horseman, Deputy Editor of the Trade Policy News Service, Borderlex. In each of our podcasts in this series, we're going to be taking a bite into the juicy morsel that is UK trade policy. Britain has now left the EU and it needs to plough its own furrow as an autonomous member of the World Trade Organization. From the point of exit on the 1st of February, it has just 11 months to strike a trade deal with the EU before the current post-Brexit transition period comes to an end. It also needs to either replicate the EU's existing trade agreements with third countries or strike its own brand new trade deals, or quite possibly both. And today, in this first podcast in the series, we're going to put the focus on the United States of America. The world's largest economy has never managed to conclude a comprehensive trade deal with the EU, despite many years of negotiations some years ago now. But are things going to be different now that the US can deal directly with the UK? Can the much-fated special relationship between London and Washington be translated into what President Trump, in his usual understated way, has described as a massive trade deal between the two sides? Prime Minister Boris Johnson has made clear that for him, a trade deal with the US is as big a priority, if not perhaps even more so, than a deal with the EU. But are Britain and America natural trade partners? What do they really have in common, apart from a shared language and existing bilateral trade that's already worth about $260 billion a year? Will Britain ultimately choose to remain a European country in terms of its approach to regulating business? Or will we take this opportunity to metaphorically drift off into the Atlantic and become more closely aligned with our cousins across the pond? Now, these are big questions, but to help us answer them, we've got a fantastic panel of guests for our podcast today. I'm joined here in Brighton by Michael Gassiorek, Professor of Economics here at the University of Sussex, an eminent economist with a specialism in international trade and regional integration, and a fellow of the Trade Policy Observatory. And we're joined today from Dublin by Sir Jonathan Full, Chair of European Public Affairs for the Brunswick Group, and formerly for many years a very senior European Commission official and also a fellow of the Trade Policy Observatory. And someone who I know quite well, Jana Dreyer, founder and editor of Borderlex, the aforementioned trade policy news service. And we're going to be joined also by Alan Beatty, who is senior trade writer for the Financial Times and an associate fellow of Chatham House. Welcome, everybody. Hello. 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 (laughs) Okay, just checking that you're all still there. That's fantastic. So just to get things underway, Michael Gassiret, can I ask you, why are both the UK and US governments placing so much importance on the quest for a bilateral trade deal right now, straight after Brexit? Yes, I think it is quite interesting that both governments are placing quite a lot of emphasis on this. And I think the reasons are actually quite different. For the UK, I think it's in the first instance, probably a political imperative. Much has been made about regaining control over trade policy for the UK. And so signing a trade agreement with another country is a really important manifestation of that. It shows that we actually do have an independent trade policy. And I think it was quite interesting what you referred to earlier, that Boris Johnson said that signing a deal with the US is at least as important 
as signing a deal with the EU. And I think that's really driven primarily by the politics. There is clearly a bit of an economic argument. The US is a big player, a big market, and that might help the UK offset some of the costs of leaving the EU. But perhaps we'll discuss those economic arguments a little bit later. I think for the US, the motivation is quite different. I mean, for the US, the UK is not a big export or import market. It's ballpark 2 or 3% of US's trade. That's not a big deal. It's true that when it comes to investment flows, it's much more important. I think for the US, the motivation is quite different. The US wants to drive a bit of a wedge between the UK and the EU in terms of everything to do with regulatory barriers and to try and sign a trade deal with the UK that undermines the EU's approach on regulation in particular. Thank you. Well, there's plenty to unpack there, and we'll get on to many of those points as we go ahead. Jonathan, what's, what, what's in it for, for both sides? I mean, there's already a lot of trade and investment between the UK and the US. Um, so what practical benefits could a trade deal deliver over and above what both sides have at present? Well, I think in economic and trade terms, simply more trade than there is today. In political terms, there will be a great symbolism, I think, in the UK making agreements, having uh, regained its autonomy to do so. So there's a lot of politics involved in it. But as you say, there's already a lot of trade across the Atlantic under uh, WTO uh, arrangements and, uh, and other agreements in certain sectors of the economy. But there isn't a, a fully-fledged trade agreement. If there is one, then I suppose both sides would uh, expect there to be more trade under that new agreement than there is today. Jana Dreyer, can I um, bring you in at this point? Um, whenever anyone talks about the UK-US trade relationship, it's never long before somebody mentions chlorinated chicken. What does the, uh, the, the drama about these poultry tell us about the broader issues uh, that are at stake in these negotiations? One of the arguments for believing the EU was precisely to have a more, maybe American style, uh, less regulatory heavy way of dealing with trade and the economy. And it's interesting to see that chlorinated chicken appears as Again, as one of the flashpoints that have already derailed talks, transatlantic talks, EU-US talks in the past. I mean, chlorinated chicken is in a very old issue. In 2007, already it derailed something called the Transatlantic Economic Council Tech. They were trying to do to reach an agreement on, on trade already at that time, and, and that failed, uh, precisely that stumbled precisely over the issue of chlorinated chicken. So um, for me, it's a test of how European, how European Britain wants to remain in, in some ways. Um, more, more technically, perhaps it points to the difficulty there is generally in uh, doing trade agreements nowadays, uh, because most of the trade barriers in a world where tariffs are low, this might change after many years of um, Mr. Trump being in power in the US where tariffs are back, but fundamentally we are uh, especially among you know rich economies in in a low tariff world where trade barriers come from the divergence in regulation and here clearly the EU and the US have very different approaches to regulating 
meat hygiene. Alan Beatty from the Financial Times. On this question of, of, of chlorinated chicken, it's often described as being a, a, a food safety issue, but it's it's not entirely that way, is it? There's, there's more to it than that. There is. I mean, first of all, um, the Americans get very upset if you call it chlorinated chicken. The, um, the US Agriculture Secretary, Sonny Perdue, was in uh, Brussels just recently and went on at length about how they hardly use chlorine anymore. They use something called paracetic acid. Um, but in any case, the, I think that the thing that's really grabbed people's attention is um, the idea that having uh, the eating chicken that's been washed in chemicals is probably bad for you. But more generally, some of the European objection to it is that the use of um, chemicals at the end of the production chain, at the end of the poultry production chain, lets you get away with bad practices earlier in the production chain, unsafe practices, practices that are bad for um, uh, for the birds themselves and so forth. So it goes a bit beyond just their particular use of chemicals. Though that's the that's the thing that a lot of people focus on. So it's a it's a question of agricultural practice as much as it is uh, about whether the stuff is safe to eat. It is though the interesting thing here is that according to trade rules, it is much easier to justify banning things on the grounds of food safety than it is on the basis of how they're produced, because you know how things are produced um, are generally left up to the country themselves. It's not really the role of the consuming country to go along, you know, dictating and micromanaging how countries produce things that they then export. So if the EU tries to make a case, or the UK in a trade deal rather, tries to make a case that it should ban chlorine washed chicken, chemical washed chicken, because of the animal welfare effects, it's going to be on somewhat shakier ground. Michael, do, does the UK have to effectively choose one side or the other? I mean, can, can we not have our cake and eat it, if I dare use that expression? It, it's a little bit hard to have your cake and eat it. I mean, let me pick up and sort of follow on a couple of things that Jana said there. She's absolutely right that really these modern trade deals and one with the US is not going to be a lot to do with tariffs. You think about what we export to the US. 50% of what we export in terms of goods already faces no tariffs. Over 40% has only tariffs of 5% or so. So it really isn't so much about removal of tariffs, although it clearly is in some sectors. It's much more to do with issues such as regulations, such as different regulatory approaches. It's really hard for producers within the same industry to produce to lots of different standards for different markets. The moment you start aligning with one big player in the world, the US, then it makes it harder to align with the other big player in the world, the EU. So while it might be possible in to have different approaches in different sectors. Within a sector, it's probably tricky. And the EU is very nervous about the UK taking on a US-based approach to regulations and so on. So I think it's going to be pretty hard. Jonathan, the UK has this choice to make. What's the um, what's the Commission's view on this? We've heard a lot about uh, a, a sort of level playing field from the point of view of, of trade between the EU 27 and the UK. Um, but there's an external aspect to this as well. Um, is, is the Commission nervous about the UK sort of drifting off into the Atlantic regulatorily, regulatorily speaking, if that's even a word? Yes, I think there is that nervousness. I think the EU is obviously diminished by the departure of the UK, which is a large country, uh, a country with some clout in the world. And one of the ironies of the current situation is that EU trade policy 
bears the mark of lots of British commissioners and uh, uh, civil servants over the last 40, 50 years. So I think there is a loss there. I mean, the basic, the basic rule in the EU will continue to be if you want to sell goods into my market, you have to comply with my rules. So going back to chlorinated chicken and, and GMOs, if uh, and, and having cakes and eating them, if a cake made in the UK contains uh, genetically modified organisms imported from the US, the Europeans won't allow it to be further exported into the EU, with all the complications that that brings, no doubt, between Calais and Dover. But in the first instance, at the land border in Ireland, where the EU meets the UK on the ground. I happen to be in Dublin today, so I'm uh, uh, acutely aware of uh, the land border a few miles to the north of here. The practical implementation of the agreement in Ireland and more broadly of agreements between the UK and the EU will not be easy. Uh, uh, so it's a, to simplify a triangular relationship between the EU, the US and the UK, and that's of course ignoring entirely the much more complicated ge geometrical figure that one would have to dream up to deal with relations between all of them and the rest of the world. And as things stand, as we leave the EU, not much has yet been put in place to replace all the EU-based arrangements. And there are 11 months in which to do a great deal of negotiation and then conclude and ratify an agreement in an absolutely unprecedented record time. What Jonathan's answer kind of illustrates there is in thinking about a deal with the US, it's really hard to... Um, think about how that negotiation could progress or could be signed without knowing what we're going to agree with the EU. So while the British government has said, yes, we want to pursue both negotiations in parallel, they're actually very closely intertwined. And what the US might want to agree to might depend on what the UK has agreed with the EU and vice versa. So doing it simultaneously greatly complicates things. May I add something here as well, because Jonathan mentioned Ireland and Northern Ireland. Uh, I just very briefly wanted to go back to that. The, the renegotiated Northern Ireland protocol in the withdrawal agreement with the EU uh, has raised a lot of questions within Britain about the, ex the existence or the extent of internal checks between Northern Ireland and the island of Great Britain in future. Uh, basically, Northern Ireland will remain aligned with the EU and Britain is allowed to diverge. But the more Britain diverges, especially in the food and, and what they call SPS area of uh, sanitary issues, uh, the more there will have to be checks. Uh, so there's also an internal dilemma within the United Kingdom about this issue. It's not only triangular, it's triangular between the UK, the US and the EU, but it's also triangular with the whole Northern Irish, Irish question as well. It's immensely complicated and we will be having a Trade Bites podcast coming up shortly on this, the subject of the, uh, the, the Irish border and precisely that dilemma. We've also mentioned about the attempts which the EU made to negotiate a, a trade deal with the US, the, uh, the, the, the famous TTIP negotiations. Now, I know, Jana, you covered those uh, very closely for, for many years. What lessons do you think the UK and the US could learn from the TTIP experience? Well, with hindsight, 
I would say that the big lesson one needs to take from bilateral trade agreements, free trade agreements, is that they generally only really come to a conclusion when the power relationship is asymmetric. It's a very hard reality of international economic relations. And what was very interesting about that TTIP experiment, this attempt to create a real transatlantic market of sorts, was that it were two roughly equal commercial powers, two roughly equal regulatory powers, trying to find compromises and bridging gaps. But the two of them separately are very intransigent, uh, especially on these whole regulatory issues in their own bilateral trade agreement. But fundamentally, it's an asymmetric relationship where one regulatory superpower has the overall say. And it's worth adding to this, I expect, Jonathan, you've got much more direct experience of this than myself or Jana, probably. But these trade negotiations are tough. This is not people sitting around the room and trying to be nice to each other. These are countries that are interested in um, promoting their own self-interests in a tough, often aggressive negotiating fashion where they're trying to promote what is good for them. And there's a lot of experience that countries such as the US and the EU have in negotiations. And just frankly speaking, at the moment, the British government doesn't have much experience. Well, you're right that uh, trade negotiations are tough and they don't always succeed, as we know. I mean, what happens is that both sides start by identifying what they call their offensive interests, things that they really want, and their defensive interests, things that they really don't want to happen. The problem is that quite usually, even between close friends, one side's offensive hits up against the other side's defensive. Mm. And uh, that's why difficulties arise. Both both sides will go into a trade negotiation saying, we want more trade with each other, but they will also have a list of industries that they are uh, concerned about exposing to more competition. They will have suspicions about whether the other side is playing fair, whether it's subsidizing, whether it's not regulating goods, let alone services, and we haven't talked about them yet, in an acceptable way, which is why, I mean, the EU took half a century to get to the not altogether perfect single market that it has today. The transatlantic trade relationship, the great TTIP uh, experiment, hasn't yet come to fruition. Even within North America, we've had NAFTA, we've had the end of NAFTA, we now have something new. It's not easy. I wonder whether part of the dynamic in the UK-US relationship will be involved in, in sort of seeking uh, protections or exemptions for the, the kind of tariffs which, I mean, for example, at the moment, Scotch whiskey is, is subject to, uh, to, to tariffs on sales to the, to the United States. So will the UK see a deal as being some kind of safe haven against the uh, rather more quixotic uh, trade decisions that the US administration has been coming up with? Or do you think that's a false hope? It's hard for me to see how at least the US in the current administration and the current climate there would deal very differently with Britain and just because of Britain's sake, just eliminate tariffs on steel and, and remove any threats on tariffs on autos or just remove any tariffs on whiskey. I find it really hard to see how that something constructive uh, can really happen unless Britain pays a high price. 
of some sort. By and large, I agree with Jana there. I think that even if we manage to sign a free trade agreement with the US, that doesn't sort of give the UK some sort of safe harbour against future Trumpian-style tariffs in response to sort of changes in the world economy or as as the whim goes, as it were. Um, it probably provides a little bit of protection. I mean, just because you've got a trade agreement doesn't mean that the US won't choose to suddenly impose some tariffs because it feels that something has been threatened. It did so against Canada, for example, with the steel tariffs, even though there was a uh, an after agreement and so on. So I don't think it protects it. Two other things just to throw into the pot on this. It'll be very interesting to see how the US responds to the UK introducing a digital sales tax if it chooses to do so in April, um, given the ongoing negotiations and the extent to which it uses this as a sort of lever in future negotiations. And the second to throw into the pot is it is possible that in a year's time we might have a different president. We do have an American election coming up. So a lot of this discussion is kind of based on the assumption that um, of sort of a Trumpian uh, US inspired trade policy, that might change. I'm not confident that it will, but it might. And then the picture might look quite different. Alan Beatty from the Financial Times. There's been, there is a lot of public interest in the, the idea of a, a trade deal with the United States. Partly that's because people like you and me in the Fourth Estate have been very uh, successful in, in, in writing about it and communicating the issues involved. But of course, it, it has very much uh, grabbed the attention of the British public. This will be, uh, apart from the EU deal, possibly the, the, the first of the new trade deals that the UK is going to do. Do you think that makes life more difficult for the uh, people responsible for negotiating this deal, knowing that the whole public is watching so closely in a way which may not have been the case for perhaps other free trade agreements that might be done with uh, with less high-profile countries? I think it's absolutely more difficult. And there are specific issues that everyone now knows about. Chemical-washed chicken is one of them. Another one is pharmaceutical pricing for the National Health Service. You know, it was notable during the general election campaign when the Labour Party suddenly produced all these secret documents that had been um, leaked, they were the minutes of um, UK negotiations or UK preliminary talks with the US over a trade deal. It was that that everyone was really interested in, partly because everyone's always interested in the US, partly because it's Donald Trump. And I think partly as well, because some of the Brexit enthusiasts have always talked up the idea of a deal with the US. They've talked up the idea, you know, of these two old allies and cousins and anglospheric transatlantic cousins doing a trade deal together uh, but the the problem with raising expectations like that is one it also emphasizes the the, the shortfalls if there's a shortfall and two indeed um, it invites an awful lot of focus on on the talks as they go along if I can just turn to um, another topic which uh, always rears its ugly head when, uh, whenever UK-US trade uh, is, is being talked about, that's uh, the issue of procurement and in particular um, the, uh, the, the, the question of, of access to, um, to the, the, the healthcare market, the, uh, the, the UK's healthcare market. Is the National Health Service up for sale um, to use the uh, somewhat tabloid formulation, which is which is often used in this respect, what does the, the U.S. actually want to get out of this uh, this discussion about the uh, the, the British uh, healthcare market, um, and and what do you foresee as being the the, the major issues as that debate unfolds? 
Well, as far as that tabloid formulation goes of, is the NHS for sale? No, the NHS is not for sale. And in a way, it was an easy response for British politicians. So no, 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 the NHS is not for sale. The current situation is that the NHS is a major near-monopoly buyer, purchaser of drugs. That means it can decide which drugs it purchases and can influence the price very heavily and keep those prices lower. American pharmaceutical companies, drug companies, don't like that. They would like the market um, to operate in a much more competitive sense, which would essentially raise drug prices. Now, if they manage to get that agreed in some form of FTA with the US, then it's not that the NHS would be for sale, but it might be the case that drug prices rise substantially for some drugs in the UK. And that clearly would affect the NHS. Uh, let, let me take government procurement, but the other way around. We should not forget that the UK has plenty of offensive interests in the US on public procurement. And the US is a big exporter of services that are bought by uh, governments. But they're like many other European countries, French and Germans. Uh, it faces barriers in the US market because there are buy American provisions that exclude foreigners because many of the federal state level markets are also not very open to non-US bidders. But I, I wonder how the UK is envisaging at the moment, how it will tackle its own offensive interests and in government procurement with the United States. Jonathan, what's your view? Do you think that um, the uh, UK will persuade the Americans to uh, amend the Jones Act and uh, give British... Uh, British maritime interests access to their to their shipping interests, or is, is that um, unlikely to uh, be an outcome? Well, it's a big ask. I think the UK would be right to ask for it, but it will have to consider what might be the trade-off if the Americans are willing to entertain the discussion of the Jones Act and so on. It's, it's going to be a difficult, hard, hard-headed discussion with all sorts of uh, difficult assessments needing to be made about uh, the benefit of trading this for that. And behind each this and that, there will be uh, special interests, regions, lobbies on both sides, which will think that their issue is more important than any of the others. It's difficult. The EU has had to do it across 28 countries with considerable success. So it's possible the UK is going to have to uh, learn very fast again how to be a sharp, agile, sophisticated trade negotiator. Uh, no doubt we have an excellent civil service and, and they can step up to that challenge. But it's going to be tough. And at all times, they're going to have to be talking to the Americans, looking over their shoulder at the Europeans and talking to the Europeans and looking over their shoulder at the Americans. And these things take time and need economic assessment. And if everybody's in a rush, or if one party's in a rush to do things quickly, corners may be cut. And that would be, I think, a mistake. So it's going to be hard. I agree with Jonathan. I think these things do take time and do need careful assessment. I'd add one other thing into that. I think the development of a good trade policy also involves good consultation with stakeholders and making sure that you've got people on board with what your offensive and defensive interests are. 
And at the moment, it's slightly less obvious quite how the UK government is doing this. So this involves involving businesses, involves uh, involving devolved administrations and development of a trade policy. As Jonathan pointed out earlier, these deals, the US deal, raises quite a lot of quite sensitive political topics, such as chlorinated chicken, which we've already touched on, such as the NHS, such as the digital sales tax. People worry about these and think about these things and have strong opinions on these things. And it's really quite important that as much consultation is done, I think, by the British government to evolve the strategic offensive and defensive interests as much as possible, as opposed to simply announcing them outright. Alan, there has been controversy about the the digital sales tax, which France in particular has attempted to uh, impose, and the Americans have given that rather a frosty reception. It's also on the agenda in the UK. Do you think this is an area where the populist desire to have proper taxation of companies like Facebook and Google runs up against the uh, trade policy imperative to do a deal with the United States? Yes, it absolutely is. And this is a a dilemma I think the UK is going to face um, again and again. We saw recently with its decision to allow the Chinese company Huawei into the 5G network against intense pressure from the US not to do so, that in that particular case, when it came to it, it was prepared to endanger a trade deal with the US and relations with the US in order to boost the the domestic economy, the domestic um, tech economy. And to do, you know, and 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 have domestic freedom of movement um, rather than necessarily going all out for a trade deal. Now that was just one example, but if it does the same thing again, if it's really insistent on taxing U.S. tech companies, then you know it may well be uh, prepared to jeopardise the U.S. FTA to do that. Now you know it's not clear whether the U.K. really will be able to hold out, particularly if EU countries start backing away from their own ideas about digital sales taxes, as France has done. So we'll see how that comes out. But this is certainly the kind of dilemma that the UK is going to face repeatedly in the months and indeed the years to come. We have covered a lot of ground today. Uh, There's a lot of ground that we could have covered, but uh, time is marching on. I would just like to ask everybody one question, final question to wrap up. And I'll I'll ask each of you, what do you think the prospects are for a deal? When do you think a deal might be reached? And will it be comprehensive, piecemeal or light touch? Jana, what's your view? Predictions are very hard to make. If the UK government wants to achieve something, it will, you know, and by the end of the year, either, as my predecessor has just said, the UK will have to make so many concessions to the US <laughs> to get a, a quite comprehensive deal, but on US terms, or there will be something rather limited in scope. So it is, it, if, if you're looking to the end of the year, I would hope that the UK and the US take their time. I think it has transpired from the conversation below that, that Britain needs to you know, still sort out its priorities domestically, have a system that will make trade policy both accountable and also sustainable in the long term if you have buy-in from uh, sectors, stakeholders, parliament. And, um, you know, also weigh, um, 
you know, the trade-offs between that are there between its relationship with the EU and the US. Jonathan, what's your view? One important issue that we haven't really touched on is who makes trade agreements. And it's a mixture, as you would expect, of executives and parliaments, or in the case of the United States, the US Congress. So I assume that any full, comprehensive goods and services agreement needing ratification by the US Congress and on the European side, the European institutions in Brussels and the parliaments of uh, each of the 27 member states, and in the case of Belgium, the regional parliaments of the regions of that country. I think that all guns ablaze comprehensive agreement within 11 months is simply impossible. What is possible is progress towards that of some sort and perhaps some preliminary agreements about relatively simple things, but only relatively simple, in the area of physical goods and the way they are dealt with at the customs. I don't think they will get very far on services in either of the two sets of relationships because they will take much longer because services are entirely a matter of you don't stop them at the border. So services are a matter of regulation. I think 11 months is uh, a completely inadequate period of time to do very much in that area, particularly if you need parliamentary ratifications at the end of it. Michael, do you take the view it's going to be an incremental process rather than a fireworks out, we've done a deal? Yes, I think so. I mean, you know, gosh, crystal ball gazing is really, really difficult. But I agree with everything that Jonathan and Jan have said. Signing some sort of deep and meaningful agreement with either the US or the EU within 11 months, simply, it's, it's, it's really hard to imagine how that could possibly happen. Both the US and the UK would really like to be able to show that they could sign a deal. So maybe there is a slim chance of some very shallow, limited, provisional agreement subject to further discussions being signed. But even that, frankly, I think is pretty unlikely. And there we must leave it. That wraps up our podcast today. Many thanks to all our guests, to Michael Gasiorek, to Sir Jonathan Fall, to Jana Dreyer and to Alan Beatty. And most importantly, many thanks to all of you for listening. Thank you very much. We look forward to having you join us again next time on Trade Bites. Please subscribe to our Trade Bites podcast series brought to you by the UK Trade Policy Observatory with funding from the Economic and Social Research Council.